therapeutic way. Profound. I mean, that's somebody gets that person she had actually made the awareness, like, wow, I have access to this universal truth, but I have this real damage here. And I actually have to go do this before I do that. A lot of people in our culture haven't done that. And we have these Indian models, these Japanese models. I mean, don't forget, I always start ranting about this as a martial artist. The top Zen teachers in Japan during World War II were pro-war, were pro-Nazi. So what does that mean? And these are not stupid people. These are people who sit on a cushion 10, 12, 14, 17 hours a day for decades. So how does that work? Because the personality, which is the thing that becomes a nationalist, is separate. Right? So this thing needs to really be addressed in our culture. And those cultures, let's look at the Indian culture, they weren't hyper-individuated like New York, like America. So that's a whole different thing that needs to be addressed. There were these super hyper-individuated people taking these techniques from cultures that were not individuated. So the ego is a very tricky business on that level. So just, that's the first thing I want to say to you. Now, it really is so much stuff to cover, so what I want to actually give you is some tools that you can use every day for your own path. You know, when I came in here, this was a chair that was here for me. This is, this is typical of our culture. I mean, what is this? Are we not all the same? Right. We can nod our head, but we actually don't feel that. I can learn from all of you, you can learn from all of me. This chair with its different, nicer seat and nicer, you know, usually you're in a higher place. This is like typical when I teach in places. You have a different platform. Our culture is immediately into this mode. This weird father, son, father, daughter, mother, daughter. Right away we go into this inequality. We're all the same. Everybody here has got something to teach. Your soul came in here very specifically with specific things to learn and to teach. The ideas of really the exercise we're going to share today so you can hear that. No one can teach you the truth. They can just tell you what's untruth. Mr. Gadatta, who was this amazing Indian teacher, he was sort of like the Sid Vicious of the spiritual world, pissed off guy, always angry and cursing. He used to say, you don't have to understand enough if you don't misunderstand. Right? You don't have to understand enough if you stop misunderstanding. What does that mean? It means the mind, this little monkey that's talking to you today, this jackass sitting here, whatever comes out of my mouth is a lie. And whatever you're going to hear is a lie. The truth is actually something that's inside you that's felt. It's not an intellectual phenomenon. This is one of the wildest things that I see people do ayahuasca. Ooh, they have this amazing experience. It's wonderful. The ego not gets a whole... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This man just came back from the Amazon, as you can tell, because he's a shave and a shower. Um, that energy, like that opening, you're not there. Then the you comes back and gets formed and tries to have some intellectual discourse with that energy. It's always bullshit. Right? I am God. People have these experiences. I am God. That's when the ego is having an enlightenment experience. God is you, whatever energy you want. God is, you know, these words are all... Bullshit, obviously. I mean, what, Christianity? How many 50 million people have been killed in the crusade between Islam, the Islamic world? I mean, it's amazing. We don't question these things. That's the ego getting hold of a spiritual truth. Dangerous business. So the first thing that I just want to get that clear out here, in your own path, whatever it is, whatever you're doing, you're a Buddhist, you're a Sufi, understand 
If you're doing spiritual work, you have to do psychological work. Everybody does. Whatever that is for you. For some people, it's going through the body. For some people, it's therapy. And yes, I know there's a lot of crazy therapy. 25 years of Freudian analysis. Brilliant stuff with great therapists. You put two needles in them as an acupuncturist, they have a breakdown. Because they've never felt. Everything's up in the head. So we've got psychology, we've got spirituality, we've got the body. So obviously for me, as a body worker for 27 years, my way in is the body. Because one of the things that I find is that no one's in their bodies ever. So, I started my work treating drug addicts back in the day, in the 80s. As a part of that, I got into biofeedback. Biofeedback basically is using these instruments that give feedback from your biology. What is that? If you're stressed right now, your hands are a little bit colder, they sweat a little bit, right? You, you ever get a cold, clammy hands? So this is an evolutionary lag. Lion jumps up, breathing gets shallow, muscles get tight, your hands get cold because the blood goes inside, and they get sweaty because your nervous system is really the fight-or-flight response. But the other thing that happens is your brain goes into a hyper-beta state. That's a state most of us are in right now, which are cups of coffee on Sunday and probably all got loaded last night. The state that you want to be in is alpha, which is the meditation state, right? So that's what, I don't know if, you, I'm sure if you've been around somebody who's a strong meditator. You know, people go, people have good energies, or you hang around someone, your body relaxes. The alpha state is that. Like when you hang around these really heavy-duty nuns and monks who just sit a lot, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, right away, you have a sort of, it's like a feeling of energy. That's because that alpha state is so strong. Now, when I started doing this biofeedback stuff, I was doing a lot of martial arts, I was doing a lot of Zen. And my thing was the brainwave stuff. Because I learned early on that you can warm your hands and dry your hands, but still really not be in that alpha state. So then I would get some of my martial arts buddies and there, some of my Zen buddies. They weren't meditating. You put this equipment on them, the equipment doesn't lie. It tells you what hurts setting. They were actually more beta than alpha. So I realized like, wow, we can think we're meditating, we're actually thinking about meditating. So, the technique that I want to share with you is one thing that I find actually brings on the alpha state. But one thing that's very important is that, how can I put this, physiology affects biology. Your posture, I mean, like, actually interesting, in this room, most of you have really good postures, but it really affects your body, right? So we have that statue of the thinker. When you jump your head out, when your neck goes out, like in English we say you stick your neck out, um, you actually lose your center. That's not just a martial arts thing. Actually, you get more cerebral. So these are things you can actually play with. It's very interesting because most of you have good postures, probably because, I'm not stupid, I put it into a circle because everybody's more vulnerable. Right? The way we typically sit, which is the way they had this class set up, is the people in the front row are vulnerable, and then everybody else behind them can do whatever. <laughs> the circle thing forces everybody to be more aware and more present. So... I'm looking at some of your feet, for example, and I'm not pointing you out. Everybody does this in the beginning. When you're in this state, this actually puts you into the fight-or-flight response, which is what most of us are in all the time, when our toes go back. So the first thing is having the feet flat on the ground makes a difference. The next thing is actually raising from the back of your skull. So just sit up a little bit and just try this. So just feel how this feels. Raise from the back of your skull. Feet are flat on the ground. 
And then your chest bone here, your breastplate. So body workers, I would call it breastplate. Um, have yes lifted here. This is where it gets subtle. Most of us, when we do the good posture thing, we do the stick up the ass thing or the Marine Corps thing. We do this thing. This is actually a third chakra thing, which most of us collapse in. It's actually relaxed here. This is not pushing in. The butt's tucked in a little bit. Feel that? Can you feel how the energy just dropped in the room? Can you feel how your energy just dropped? Is anyone aware of that? Right, so it's a kinesthetic experience. Raise your, up, there you go. Now, I want to start with meditating 10 minutes, but a body-aware meditation. So whatever your practice is, if you're a chanter, whatever your practice, I just want you to practice this. Because if you walk out with this today, I'd be really happy. So for me as a healer, this is what I do all day long. This is how I read people. I'm in this body physically. It keeps me out of the way, and I can feel people. But I'm not special. You can do that too. I've just done it for 27 years. So I'm going to have my little... Is everyone's phone off, by the way? Something that would be really interesting today to practice, so you'll have a nervous breakdown, is actually turn your phone off and don't look at it for the next... till 5.30. I'm just using it off. Um, the radiation on these things, by the way, is staggering. I mean, I don't know if you're into the research. You should really have these things turned off when you're carrying them on your person, unless you use them. It's pretty, the research is pretty well. But that's just a side effect. So this has got a little um, timer on it. We're going to start with 10 minutes. I'm just going to guide you through this first part. And then we're going to drop in. Ready? So this meditation could also be called sit with your anxiety. Because that's one thing that everybody is, right? Like all of our masks, which we'll get into, really is about pushing away the anxiety. That's the one common denominator. I treat 14-year-olds, I treat 9-year-olds. Profound anxiety. That's why this is so hard to do. To sit through this, that initial bit is that anxiety that we all have. And it's magnified by the fear culture that we live in. So this is your medicine. The beauty of this technique, there's two types of meditation basically. Distraction, attention. A distraction technique, like a mantra, you cannot do that when you're driving. Maybe you can, but you probably crash. You can't do that when you're talking to someone. The attention technique, you can do wherever. We're going to do it with our eyes closed initially, but this is something that I will keep you to all day today. So, feel your feet. Make sure you're raising from the back of your skull. chest bone, soften your belly because we all tend to hold a little bit in our belly, we pull our gut in. feet and feel your hands.
Make sure your jaw is relaxed. Keep dropping that belly. Deep breath. One last time. Feel your face, your throat relaxed chest. Your belly. Your butt. A lot of us tighten our anal sphincter as a control mechanism. Relax that. Your thighs. Your calves. shin bones, into your feet, <coughs> while feeling your body, bring your awareness to that drone, which is probably the sound of the heater. Occasional sounds from the street. your awareness on your body, on the sounds, and I'm generally going to come around and just adjust your posture just a little bit.
Gently open your eyes and keep this connection. It's amazing. All of you really have pretty good posture. I mean, compared to most people that I work with, you're all pretty aligned. The one thing I would say that's really common in the room, one is this neck out thing. The neck out really makes the head work more. It's very subtle, and it's very common in meditation practice where we, we do do that. It's just something I found working with people and just using the instruments. So this um, Alexander technique, that, which is the basis of martial arts, if you lift this thing, actually stand up. As a, the other thing a lot of you are doing is, I'm going to exaggerate here, but you break here, which is very common with people. This actually weakens the energetic body. You want to have this tucked in, not too much, but a little bit tucked in. We tend to break here. So one of the things is keep your feet parallel. I'm going to teach you a little Qigong thing later. Most people stand too far back, which is when we were kids, we start walking like that, falling backwards, and most of us tend to keep our weight in the back of the body, which is actually not stable. So the basic martial arts thing is you actually want to be more in the front. So just try that a second, see what that does to your energy. A little bit front, and a lot of the time you're going to feel like you're falling forward because you're doing this all the time. So just weight the front toes a little bit. Tuck the butt in just a little bit. Keep the knees a little bent. And feel what happens to your hands as you do that. To actually start throbbing or getting warmer pretty quickly. That's just your energetic body circulation, whatever words you want to use for. Can you feel that? Right? Sit back a little bit, see what happens. If if you really stress end of a day, sitting back drops the energy down. That's a Qigong martial arts practice. If you're in the morning, you want to practice, this is sort of like the body's caffeine. You bring the energy forward a little bit, the energy comes up, and you're more alert. Right? Animals, when they want to fight, they go into this mode. They're not in this mode. <laughs> Chill out mode, Rasta mode, Wall Street mode. And then, this little Qigong thing we'll do a little bit later. Just bring your hands out a little bit and see what that does. And point your index fingers. index finger thing is really neat. This guy, Rick Barry, the martial arts buddy of mine, came up with this. Which in a lot of martial arts you point, and as far as we can figure it out, you know as kids, you know how you point all the time? As kids, children start, it's the first thing we do, we don't do this, we don't do this, we do this. There's something by pointing the fingers that makes the body's energetic feel more integral. The integrity comes up. And I, I really think it's from that. It's like as, as children we start connecting our energy by pointing the thing. So feel that. Feel what happens when you have your hands out a bit, you're pointing with your fingers. Can you feel that? And now do that thing with the meditation posture, which beautiful that some of you are already doing. The head comes up from the back. Lovely. And relax your anal sphincter. You know how we talk, and I know it's like it's funny, like how we say someone's anal? Why do we say that? Because at a very young age, your anal sphincter doesn't form till you're much older. So if you're not feeling safe as a kid, which is for most of us, we actually pinch our butt as a way of compensating for the fact that we don't have control of our anal sphincter. As a child, I mean, you don't have control over much. Shitting is just one of them, well, as politicians do. But you want to actually work on constantly relaxing your butt muscle. Because everybody holds that. And that actually shoves the energy up, which makes you very cerebral. So feel that. Everybody feeling that? Can I share anything on my kid feel it? 
this meat suit, a million and a half years old. This little gray matter up here, the way you're using it, not even 200 years old. Trust us. When you're in a situation something feels wrong, it feels wrong. It doesn't feel wrong. This will always lead you astray. You have neuropeptides in your So when you're pursuing things, teachers, if you walk into a situation it doesn't feel right, trust us. Relationships. Investments with the Wall Street guys to walk away with your money. <laughs> it is a gut feeling. And the more you can practice this stuff, the more you can actually have your own teacher within you. This is going to tie into a shadow stuff. You're like, get on with this bald guy. This is the part. <laughs> okay, now let's sit down and keep this connection going. Did you feel that when he did that breathing out, how much anxiety everybody was holding? Yeah? I mean, that's like the default setting for all of us. We're just not even aware of it. Now, to keep the unpleasantness going, I'm going to read you a poem to set the tone for the day. This is from Rumi. It's, it's uh, four chord things. This is the last one. It's called Childhood Friends. I told you this stuff's unpleasant, right? There's nothing worse than thinking you're well enough. More than anything, self-complacency blocks the workmanship. Put your violence up to a mirror and weep. Get that self-satisfaction flowing out of you. Satan thought, I am better than Adam. And that better than is still strongly in all of us. Your stream water may look clean, but there's unsteered matter on the bottom. Your guide can dig a side channel that will drain that waste off. Trust your wound to a teacher's surgery. Flies collect on a wound. They cover it. Those flies of your self-protecting feelings, your love for what you think is yours. Let a teacher wave away the flies and put a plaster on the wound. Don't turn your head. Keep looking at that bandaged place. That's where the light enters you. And don't believe for a moment that you're healing yourself. So the teacher is really life, right? It's not the teacher. It's life. That sounds so self-explanatory. That's what's missing in spiritual practice, really. You know, the closest we get to this is that crazy wisdom thing that this wild Tibetans had in the 70s. or like fucking everyone, doing drugs. Oh, it's crazy wisdom. And it's like, maybe it's crazy wisdom. Maybe it's just crazy. We don't know. But this stuff's not pleasant. If you're feeling really pleasant in your spiritual practice, you're missing something. Maybe pleasant after 10, 20 years. So as we get into this, so they understand, that's a part of it. But it actually is really beautiful. Because that vileness is actually what we're constantly attempting to cover with all our work. And as we'll get into it, we project it on other people. Probably the most important thing today, besides this meditation that I hopefully taught you, some Qigong stuff, is the projection. Projection in that we actually project aspects of ourselves that are unresolved, that are unowned on somebody else. And it has dire consequences. It's not just in your life. Think about Nazi Germany. When as a community you project unowned material on another cult, which is what we do all the time, right? I mean. We all do that. It wasn't just privy of the Germans to massacre 8 million innocent people. 
in this country. It was the Russians, then it's the Arabs, Chinese, whoever. We all do it. So we're going to work around actually owning some of that later today. So let me read the syllabus today of what it is we're supposed to do. There's a funny story here. How are you? You missed the most important part, but... Um, hiding and seeking on a I was in Germany studying with uh, this guy named that I told you about. He was dead already. I wish I was studying with him. But I was studying with a student of his. And then there was this other teacher there. And it was very interesting, one day at lunch, this guy was really profound. He's one of like, the more profound people um, that I've actually met. He had a lot of answers for questions, one would think. Pretty enlightened, as far as I could tell. But later on, of course, I found out he was fucking his daughters, you know, not daughters, his daughters of other students, and like typical Indian stuff is cool. Um, while we're listening to this guy, and he really was profound. I mean, the guy really was profound. He had really profound. At lunchtime, everybody's gathering around. There were like Germans, French, some Americans, some Brits. Where are you guys going to go next? So, you know, Mother Mira's here, and then we're going to do Mother Mira, and then, you know, Ramesh is going to do something out in India, man. We've got to do that. And I was like, like, are these guys here? Or what, what like, this is, I'm having like a really profound experience, and these people really, we're not dummies, you know? Or, okay, so we do the thing, and then we'll go to dinner, and then the same thing happens again. So did you guys do that? I, I, got, I, I booked Mother Mira. As I was listening to this, I realized, oh my gosh. We are actually addicted to seeking. We don't want to know the truth. When I say we, I mean, I look at some of your faces. Some of you in here have felt pain, so I know you're open. So I honor that. Pain, really, in my experience, is the only thing that's going to bring you to your knees. Because the you that's seeking is not the you that wants it. The you that's seeking will do whatever it can not to find it. Because the end of you. So it sounds like a real cute paradox thing. You have to get hammered with this stuff. Those of you who have been through illness, I know some of you in here have. Brutal divorce, loss of a job, humiliation. Those things that can happen to you, really. But which you are we talking about? So one of the things in my experience, I don't like to talk about these things past lives. We can't even figure out, Jesus, what we're doing today. Forget about like past lives. <laughs> But what the Indians call vasanas, these body-mind tendencies that are really passed on from life to life, not in this new-agey thing that, whoa, Abdi's gone, now he's a medieval man, now he's a cave, now like, no. <laughs> but there is some tendency that gets passed on. Those of you who have children in here, those of you who work with children, you know, they come in pretty wired with very specific things. You're just like, holy shit. You know, I've been helping deliver kids for 27 years. Some of these kids now in their 20s. And it's like, what I saw in that room, the way that kid came out, is that kid now. It's just, you can call it genetics, you can call it whatever, but vasana, body-mind tendencies. We've been seeking for so long, and it's become this high. So we really get off on seeking. So the first thing we need to understand today is, if you're seeking, by all means, enjoy it. Call it that. Don't confuse that. You know, you can do coke. Good for you. Go get high. But don't confuse that with like, I'm really taking care of my health. I want to get away from reality. No problem with that. Talking to a drug addict here. Great fun drugs. Kill you. Lost a lot of friends to them. It's an experience. 
Seeking is an experience. The truth isn't an experience. The truth is the end of experience. So, these are just words. And those who know do not speak. Those who speak do not know. So you listen to a jackass sprouting his mouth off. But we can kind of touch it. So that's the hiding and seeking thing. I come across a lot of different practitioners of different spiritual paths. It's amazing how we're all hiding underneath it. If your path isn't crushing you in some way, you're having fun. And fun is awesome. And ultimately, everyone's going to get to the same place because ultimately, everyone is the same thing. It's just a matter of remembering. But understand that this is what you're doing. One hand's going like, bring it on, bring it on. The other hand's doing this. Movement towards the light. And does not include the equally important process of delving into, identifying, and integrating repressed aspects of our psyche, the shadow. So, that's typical of, that's changing now, a little bit in our culture. But that's typical of what started with the hippie movement. Hey, it's, we're all one, it's great, it's all love. And like, yes, that's an experience still. Because the second you come out and a cop comes and gives you a ticket, you go into like, rah, 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 rah. Right? So experience as opposed to holding it. The delving into is very uncomfortable. I mean, who wants to hear? All of us can sit in here and think about all the ways that we've done things that are not with integrity, painful thoughts we have, the constant judgment we have towards others. Right? So that's a delving into. You can meditate and bring your mind to a very calm space and still not touch that stuff. That's the part of it that's... So delving into is the first part of it, which, which we'll get into first and look at why that's the way it is. Integrating is like a whole different ballgame of actually owning those things. And I just came across this amazing meditation from this uh, Tibetan Buddhist, which we'll do later for integrating these projections. It's really phenomenal. This woman's awesome. She's an American Tibetan Buddhist. The thing about these Buddhists, if you're Buddhist in here, I'll... I'll start by making some Buddhist jokes. Um, they're so tightly wound, but when they're good, they're good. Because the ones that get Buddhist psychology, that's amazing. But the ones that, you know, we're always, very interesting, one thing I learned when I was a drug addict, or treating drug addicts, we go towards the thing that tonifies what's already in us. So what does that mean? The people that are actually very hyper would always become crack addicts, coke fiends, crystal meth fiends. We go towards the thing that pushes us. The people that are really just already mellow to the pot, to the, which pot is a bit of a stimulant, but we do heroin, we do opium. Why? The best of my understanding from an unconscious level, that's a left-handed path. There's a part of your body mind that's going to try to blow you up. So you actually try to break yourself, kill yourself through addiction. But it's a bit like that with our spiritual practices too. If we're really anal retentive, we're going to go towards 16 hours of Zen practice a day. It just really fits in with our addictive behavior. If we're loosey-goosey, we're going to do some loosey-goosey practice. Hey, it's all good. Do whatever you want. And if it once in a while, have sex, do drugs, it's cool. That's what Rajneesh saying. So as you get on your spiritual practice, or if you're in it, just observe that. How is it feeding that vasana in you? How is it counteracting that vasana in you? Is that clear? Is that what I'm saying makes sense? I'm getting a blank look. Um... This was interesting. So when I wrote this and gave this to the person that was doing this center here, we got into this little bit of an argument, too strong a word, but three days of back and forth, where I said, um, today we'll explore this often overlooked aspect of spiritual work. 
and examine how we sometimes fool ourselves using spirituality to hide our shadow. So what I had written was, today we'll explore this always overlooked aspect of spiritual work. And this person was like, well, we can't really do always. It's not always. I'm like, I've treated 10,000 people. It's always overlooked. Maybe one or two people. I haven't met them. But I literally have treated thousands of people. So already understand, this is not a judgment on this person. That's all of us. We don't want to admit to the fact that these things are painful. Right? So often and always are little two different words. And then the other part was how we sometimes fool ourselves. I actually had written how we always fool ourselves using spirituality to hide our shadow. And this really triggered this person, as it triggers all of us, as someone who's done a lot of spiritual work, is like, God damn it, no. Whenever you have that resistance to something, something's up. And that's our culture. That's, I mean, that's all culture, but it's very specifically our culture. This in their body. So let's start with this whole shadow thing. You're born. You come out sort of happy, maybe not happy with your vasanas. And as you get a little bit older, you have certain behaviors. Your parents love that behavior. It's fantastic. You're a musician. That's so great. Well, me and your mother, we just love music and we think it's amazing. And then you start having some kind of intellectual thing. It's like, that's bullshit. That's not artistic. That's not good. That becomes something that's not accepted. So what do you do with that? You take that and you stick it in this little bag, which is your shadow bag. Now, when we talk about this stuff, it's very easy. You're all adults in here. When we talk about getting love or needing love, I'm sure you've all had your hearts broken or your broken hearts, but we, you have to go back to a two-year-old. A two-year-old is totally dependent on a parent's love. This intellectual stuff doesn't really touch it. When I say, like, your parents don't like it, you're like, so what? I don't care, my parents. No. If you're totally dependent, if you're a paraplegic right now, God forbid, and you're totally dependent on another person feeding you, bathing you, <coughs> taking care of you, you would have a very different relationship than you would right now. Those of you in a relationship right now, those of you who have a friendship right now, those of you who have a parent alive or a child alive, think right now you're paraplegic. You can't do anything on your own. It would change your relationship, correct? That's about the closest thing you can touch. So you take these aspects of yourself and you shove it into this little bag. But it's not one or two or three things. Whatever your parents are like, wonderful, you go up. Whatever they think is horrible, you stick in this bag. So you learn pretty early on that just being who you are doesn't really work out too well. You learn to compartmentalize these things. One of the things that, you know, this is all Jung's ideas, really. Carl Jung came up with these things. One of the things that we don't talk about enough in this culture, that's the dark shadow stuff. There's also light shadow. So, I came from an intellectual family. My parents were lefties, and you read, and you do that. Art wasn't really considered something that you did. You developed the mind. So there's also light shadow. So my light shadow got shoved into the bag. Because, you know, you're not supposed to be an artist. Of course, since I was 17, I've only dated and married artists. It comes out in your life. So we're going to talk about the dark shadow today. We're going to talk about the light shadow. We don't talk about the light shadow enough in this culture. So that's the first part of it. Then there's the mask part that we'll talk about. 
the way this stuff works is we actually project this stuff. The way the dark shadow stuff works is so if I come from a family that's spiritual, smiling, love you, Christ is our teacher, Moses, Muhammad, whatever your thing is, and we actually don't hold our anger, we project the anger on other people. So the whole judgment thing, which we'll get into later this afternoon, that's how you don't own this stuff. That's how you know what your shadow is. You can't know what your shadow is. You just go, I really hate that person because they're so angry all the time. <laughs> you hear that, right? I love this about politics. You know, damn Republicans. They're just, you know, damn Democrats. Whatever your thing is. The projection is where you see. And we're all constantly judging everyone. Right? It's constantly getting pushed out. Now, you've got these pieces that you're putting in the bag. You go back to the works of people like Willem Reich. They start realizing that not only are you damaging yourself psychologically, but actually physiologically this stuff's damaging. Because you're shutting down aspects of your body mind. Those of your body workers know you put your hand on someone and move the liver around, ah, the person goes crazy. These emotions actually get stored in the body. Shout back. And this mask gets formed. And the mask is what we're presenting to the world all the time. So one of the things that I do as a clinician, I have to ask people usually two or three times, how are they doing? I go, how are you? Fine. Okay, well, we got that out of the way. How are you really? <laughs> okay, how are you really? Fuck, I'm so angry. Jesus Christ, I'm going to show my husband. The mask is very profound. Where the mask gets more profound and strong is spiritual circles. So some of you here look like you've done your time. You're like sort of Iraq war vets and Vietnam war vets of spirituality. You've done your time with all these great teachers. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. You walk in and everything is fine. There are very specific codes of how you conduct yourself. It's not open. Fine. And this is, this is our spiritual thing. Spirituality is this in our culture. Is that Botox smile. It's just like, this is spirituality. It's not really about reality. It's about this sort of fake. So, this mask, the best sort of term I came across with was this pathwork stuff. This woman, Eva Paracas, horribly written, really poorly written, but really interesting <coughs> psycho-spiritual stuff. They call it the idealized self-image. So, this mask becomes this idealized self-image that we actually wear to protect ourselves. It's just that we start doing it at such a young age, we don't really know what the other side is. So my mommy loved gray and black. So I start wearing gray and black. It's not true. I'm just. But if I just wear gray and black all the time, all the time, all the time, I actually think these are the only colors in the spectrum. I don't really know what other colors are. This becomes my idealized self-image. So I don't really feel comfortable outside of that. The problem with the idealized self-image, besides the fact that it's a lie, so you're basically lying to everyone, and we're all lying to everyone, right? I mean... This is not a nuclear bomb here. Like, we're all liars. Yes? I mean, we get agreement on that? I mean, maybe some of you, whether we lie to our partners, we lie, not on purpose, although some of us do it on purpose, but we're constantly presenting this idealized self-image because we don't know where we start where idealized self-image is. The only place we can get close to it is if you're depressed, angry, yes, there's chemical components to this. I'm not saying every person with depression has that. Although a lot of depression that I treat clinically is depressed anger, is instead of being true to this person, we're being true to the idealized self-image. 
So if I start thinking that this sweater is me, it's problematic. I stop eating. I use the best wool rag to wash it, and I don't throw it in the dryer like I did with this one, and I just learn how to do things, but I'm not taking care of this thing. That's most people. With me on that? So this mass, this idealized self-image becomes this golden piece. There's another piece in here that the path where people touch on, which is negative pleasure. There's just aspects of yourself that are not accepted. You shove it away. Now, it's painful enough to cut these pieces of yourself off as a child. But you have to actually, in your mind, make up a story about, like, that's actually fun. Right? You see that with people sometimes. Yeah, you know, I lost everything in that great crash. But it's, it builds character. It's really good. Yeah, I'm homeless now. I live with my mom. I'm 55. It's good, though. It's good. I'm learning stuff. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I mean, that's beautiful. And that's great that you have that. And I'm sure you're learning that. No, it sucks, man. Let's start with, like, this sucks. Right? It's, it sucks. It's like it's hard. Like somebody my age, 50, lose everything. Like, I can do it. Yeah. It sucks. Is it build character? Yeah, getting a boot up your ass builds character. Doesn't mean you always get a boot up your ass. The negative pleasure is we have to act. It's so devastating, these parts of us not being accepted, that we actually attach pleasure to it. So, we've got this part of you that comes in 100%. You've got to cut 10% off here, 10% off here. Mommy doesn't like this. Daddy doesn't like this. It gets bigger, right? I mean, when you learn how, we just keep going and going and going. So then, part of this is a negative pleasure, which is we actually, that's the masochistic principle, kind of, but I think the negative pleasure explains it better, where you have to attach pleasure to these aspects that are really repressed. So those two things get taken care of. And then, you lose your vitality, spiritually and emotionally, because of it. In my experience, doing the work that I do, a lot of us come to spirituality never addressing these things. And these things actually come up and bite us in the ass. Because you can develop aspects of your psyche without touching this stuff. So it becomes this very... I had a martial arts teacher one time who was one of the most profound guys in terms of fighting ability, <laughs> personality ability. This guy had spent a lot of time, he was in his late 40s. He could do stuff I've only seen two other people do. Emotionally, this guy was so underdeveloped, it was scary. And anybody who would study with this guy, this was in the 90s, would get seriously hurt. And his teachers were very famous in China for being angry people, but actually seriously injured their students. It's that same image. The little boy in him was so wounded, because he was so scared, he had spent 40 years spending 20 hours a day doing this crazy meditation and doing all this stuff. But the mind wasn't really developed. That's most of us on some level. Now, whatever your strong point is that wasn't repressed, if you're a mental person, that'll be your strength, which means the other emotional stuff gets shoved down. If you're in a family where the emotions are great and men mental stuff is considered low level, you'll, you'll push that away. So examine what is your strength. Are you a heady person? Where's your emotions? You're an emotional person. Where is that stuff? Questions so far? Yes, yes. They're the same, actually, to me. Well, well, well. Intellectual people tend to not feel their body, and heady people are actually not in their body. You cannot be in your body and be heady. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, and there are people who are very body oriented, so super athletes, people who do twenty hours of yoga a day. 
They can be in their body, but they're actually not in their body. They're actually using their head to run the body. Very interesting. People aren't in their bodies in our culture. This is something interesting as a body worker. No one's here. <coughs> All this stuff, you know, Ram Das wrote that beautiful book, Be Here Now. Like, no one's here. So the body is just the entrance point to that. So that's why the body, not like start worshipping the body. What's amazing to me is how with the whole blow-up cult of yoga, no one's here. These yogis, actually a lot of yogis, they have amazing postures and they're very open in their chest. These are beautiful things, but they're not here. They're not having body experiences. Good question. How do you discover what you discarded? How do you discover, ah, lovely, lovely. Well, now we get to the beef of it. That's a planet question, $20 for you. <laughs> um, the way we start discovering it is, start observing what you judge in other people. So the projection part, which is really the next phase of this thing, is actually how we start figuring out things that we don't accept in ourselves we project on other people. The projection thing is actually where you start getting interesting. Things get actually interesting on that level. Oh, we're going to get into it. Yeah. So let's say. Go ahead. The projection of both light and... Yes. And that's a great point. So, great point. Um, We're jumping ahead here, but it doesn't matter. There's there's no lineage here. So I'll take both those questions. Let's say I come from his intellectual family. And the light part would be... Let's say that I never... I never thought artists are worth anything. Or I didn't think I have artistic talent. The light part could be that I just, every artist that I meet, like, oh my God, this person is so brilliant. Even if you're doing whatever you're doing in your art, that would be the light part. Mm-hmm. And that's great, but what about owning that? Like, well, just sit down and make some art, man. Mm-hmm. The negative part would be what we don't own is like, artists are idiots. What are they doing for culture? They're fucking curing cancer and making a collage? Fuck you, what are you doing? <laughs> in both those cases, you actually have to own that part by actually creating some art. Right? So, for me, I mean, I'm not joking. Like, I come, my parents were both very poor. So, they were survivors. And how did they survive? They were very intelligent people. So, what did they do? They just read. My parents are in their 80s. They still read two, three books a week. Sounds lovely, but it disconnects you. But in my family, it was like, the mind was king. You just read, and you just educate, and that's, that's the sort. Art really wasn't considered something that you did. So, to your point... I'm not joking. I've only dated artists or married artists since I was 17 years old. Till I started realizing, like, wait a minute. I'm so, oh, yeah, i got to start making art. So in my 20s, I started making collages. So I started owning that shadow part of me by actually making art. I'm not a talented artist. I suck. So I had to cut out newspaper clippings and magazine things. and just. So it's not like you have to go become Rembrandt. It just means find a way into that. Mm-hmm. Vice versa. You come from an artistic family. You know, every banker is a scumbag. Business people are scumbags. I hear this all the time. The typical, like, the art thing has the flip side of it. So, okay, so, yeah, there's people who are, like, immoral. There's people immoral in everything. It's not just, like, every banker is a scumbag. So, put yourself in an environment for a week. Go take a banking class. Go take a business class. It, this stuff this is not difficult. It's not brain surgery. But it is brain surgery for the part of us that's repressed. Yes? And so, um, to... To ask a, a slightly more specific question, when you judge people, mm-hmm. um, like uh, mothers who judge other mothers, yes. or men who are very competitive at work and like just want to break down everybody, yes. what is that? Like, what, Do you think you're a bad mother when you judge well, 
Well, it's, it's aspects of yourself that you haven't accepted. For example, let's take the mother thing. That's a very common thing. If you can't accept the fact that you're human, you can only do so much. But you try to do the perfectionist thing of like, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to be a super businesswoman. I'm going to be super. It's really like, I'm wild what's happening to women right now where all these expectations are there. If you can't accept your humanness in there, you're going to project it on somebody else who's actually not meeting that ideal, which is impossible to meet. It's possible. Right? So it's not an accepting of your humanity. Like, wow, I'm human. There's 24 hours in a day. I've got to get six hours of sleep. I can do this for my child. I can do that. The judgment thing, we'll do, an, we'll do a little exercise later. It's always aspects of yourself. When your heart becomes more at peace, you stop judging people. It doesn't mean that you go like, oh, it's really great. Taliban blow people up and that's cool. It's not that. I'm talking about a more violent experience. The judgment thing is like more subtle that way. It's not like all-encompassing love. Oh, it's great, you kill, you rape, you pillage, it's okay. It's not that. But it's more of a violent reaction. And for us, it, that stuff is not really important. It's the personal stuff. It's the personal stuff. And we're going to do some exercises around that. First of all, how many of you are aware of like, how strong your mask is? Lovely. Lovely. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've done work on yourself. This is, this is great. Let's just turn around to the person on your left and the person on your right. We're just going to look at each other and really just pay attention to how you're going to start smiling, being sweet. And don't throw weird energy. It's not like a sexual thing. Just, just be gentle. It's not a pick-up scene. All right? So let's just do that. We're going to do the first to our left and to our right. So. You'll figure it out. I'm dyslexic. Don't start. You'll figure it out. Like no talking, like right now. Uh, no talking. Just feel that inside of you. As you quiet down, as in no talking, feel around your chest and feel around your belly. Turn around to the other person.
I actually want to hear. Did you hear a lot of talking? Did you hear how nervous you all got when you did it? Blah, 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 chatter, chatter, chatter. You're all like so well behaved. Like, and then all of a sudden you became crackheads. <laughs> That's the attachment to the mask. So we talk about this stuff. It's experientially, we can talk about everything. Thank you. Yeah. My old age, I can't control my bladder. And, uh, <laughs> that's how nervous we all are. So, understand that underneath this mask is profound pain. That giggling is actually hiding like, just don't look at me. Don't look at me. So everything that we do, when we get up, our intellectual concepts, the way we dress, our facial expression. And the first defense mechanism is the smile thing, right? Like right away we're like, I'm, I'm happy, I do. don't worry about me, how are you? Because I'm really happy. And it's wild how the chatter starts going. So there's a lot of pain underneath that. I'm not saying you need to go slit your wrists in the bathroom, but it's that kind of pain. It's, it's pretty intense. Right, and then you kind of calm down, everybody kind of calm down, and you look at it and you're like, whoa, okay, yeah. Notice how hard it is in our culture to look people in the eye, unless you want to fight. What are you looking at? It's that energy. So, I, you're all very intelligent people. I understand you understand. There's nothing I've said to you today you haven't understood. I want you to experience underneath the amount of pain that's there. That's why this stuff's not pleasant. What are your experiences of looking at each other? Go ahead. I cried both times. Right. Like that's the beauty of meditation. Like one, I keep saying this is the most important thing, but that's because I'm full of shit. This is the most important thing I want to tell you for this moment. You know, an elk has those beautiful horns and they clear space around it. Meditation is your horn, because what happened with you is all of us. We don't know what's going on underneath. We can't know. There's so much going on. There's so much assault and insult. And don't forget, since the 80s with this computer, I mean, those of us who are older, like, we didn't have a computer when I was a kid. I mean, these constant cell phones and these supercomputers, we're constantly checked out. So you got the mask, and you got a drug now that just is like cracked to the mask. You know? It's, you just walk down the street. No one's here. That's why it's so difficult to meditate. That's why it's so difficult to be in your body. You have to go through so many layers. That's why I laugh when people go, how are you? And go, you're fine. The most honest thing you can say is like, I think I'm here. I'm trying to be here. And then you can go from there. What else? What else do people feel? Um, I was in the three both times. Well done. And the second time, no one looked at me. And I felt like so, like, look at me. Mm -hmm. I felt so rejected. Lovely. So that's the other thing, lovely. It's very brave of you to say that. So the mask, underneath that idealized self-image, is that love me, which we all have that. And it comes in different ways. It's love me, love me, I'll do whatever I can do for you. Fuck you, love me. It works both ways. There's the anger thing of, don't you dare look at me, which is the same, please look at me. Or like, I'll do anything, please look at me. But they're both that. I mean, that's the other part of this thing. Is we, we're starved for love. And we can't hold it, right? I mean, how many of you have been in situations or relationships where you know people who are married, who are having affairs? It's everyone. 
People were just dying for a relationship, to have a relationship, and as soon as they get it, they have an affair. We can't hold it. When I was a kid, I always say this story, but it really affects me. When I was a kid in Nigeria during the Biafran War, I was very little. And kids had kwashiorkor, which is from starvation. When your body starts feeding on itself, your belly swells up. And my daddy worked for UNICEF, and you know, they would try to feed these kids. And at that point, you really can't eat. Because if you put food in, you have drank water eating, you actually start vomiting. And I remember as a kid, I was like, Dad, they're starving. Like, why can't you feed them? They're, they're, they're dying. They're like, well, son, they can't eat. They can't digest. They can't. Their digestion doesn't work anymore. And the first confusing part is that they kind of look fat, but they're starving. And the other part was they can't eat. That's us. We kind of look fat. We all look good. We can't eat. We can't tolerate love. People always talk about love. We're strangers to each other. So this mask thing is really is more than some psychological issue, to your point, to your point. Underneath there, we don't know what's going on. The whole addiction thing is an aspect of that. So this elk idea of create some space in your life on a daily level to figure out what's going on underneath. And I'm telling you, anxiety is a default setting. I have a pretty strong practice, both martial arts and meditation. And man, I'm a 50-year-old guy, I still don't want to do it. There are days when I get up and I, I know it feels great, I know I have to do it, I know my vasanas calm down, I'm much less of an asshole if I do it than I don't. To this day, there are days when I'm just like, yeah, I think I'll just go get up and chop some wood right now. It's like, um, it's 6 in the morning, dude, get your ass on your cushion. Yeah, I think I've got to go wrench. It's like, um, it's snowing outside, you really can't wrench. That's all of us. And the other thing of this mask is you can rush through your spiritual practice. That's a lot of us. It becomes a thing. I do my 20 minutes, and I do my pranayama, and then I'm going to do it. It's like, nobody home. You know, you're doing your pranayama, you're doing your kapalabhati, man. I, I can rip through that in like two seconds. <laughs> is what shoves this stuff down. Slowing down is like poison to it. 